What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Pop quiz, hot shot. Oh, God, here it comes. You're walking down the street. Mm. You're in North America. Yes. You suddenly find yourself in desperate need of working dog equipment. Right. Where are you going to get it? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. Yeah. Is that where, if you were in North America, you would get all your working dog equipment? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Why? The best. All-round good guy. All-round good guy. Got Mac a point. He spells his name with a C and not a K. Oh, he must be cool. He must be really cool. All right. Next question. Yes. You're walking down the street. Mm. Same in, street? No. Okay. Now you're in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> you can find yourself in need yep. of dog equipment. Mm-hmm. Who are you calling? Oh. <sighs> Hang on a sec. Let me think about it. Is he a buffed? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's half a buffed now. Yeah. Yeah. He's the fading buffed. He's the fading buffed. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's given away. I call old mate Jason Furman. Yep. From Einzawina. Einzawina. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Yep. One more question. Right. You are in Ashland, Virginia. Right. And that's very specific. (laughs) (laughs) You're walking down the street. Yep. Which street? Uh, Any of them. A street. Okay. And you meet a person Mm -hmm. whose dog's just being unruly. Their pet dog's causing them all kinds of problems. Yep. Who are you going to refer them on to? Oh, the one and only Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Who runs that? Melanie Benware. Uh huh. The Prez. The Prez of the ISCP. Yep. The one and only. So you would need working dog equipment in North America. Mm -hmm. Canine Canine Dynamics. Dynamics. Need any kind of dog gear in yep. Australia? Yep. Buffhead Central. Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Need some pet dog in home. What does she call it? She calls it stay and train or play and train. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All of that. Who are you calling? Kindred Canine. Melanie Benway. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Love you. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Almost <laughs> called you Ken. Ken. Ken Cook. Ken Cook. That was my uncle. <laughs> it's you now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kenny, what's been going <laughs> Kenny. on? What a great Australian movie that was. Kenny. Kenny. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What's his name? Shane. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Funny movie, though. It was a mockumentary, right? It was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was a dunny man. Yeah, yeah. Mm, very That's funny it. movie. Yeah. How you been? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Busy. Long weekend stuff. Yeah. And daylight savings. Yep. Mm. Drank a bunch of sangria on the weekend. Sangria. That reminds me of Janet Hanley. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That brings back memories of Janet Hanley in Ottawa. Yeah. So a little bit dusty. I'm not really much of a drinker these days, but in the sun with the neighbors, kids running around crazy because it's school holidays. So yeah. Forgive my, I might be a little slower today. Speaking of Janet Hanley. Yeah. Janet sends me this message the other day and goes, Hey, I was just watching MasterChef Australia mm-hmm. and she said, and the voice on it, I'm thinking, hang on a minute, that's <laughs> the voice of the canine paradigm. It is, yes. Yeah. 
funny that she got MasterChef Australia all the way over there in Canada to watch. Mm-hmm. That was, of course, Lofty, who recently just got out of hospital for back surgery. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he's doing really well, according to his partner, Helen. Yeah. I so, guess it's funny because uh, Australians would get it, mm. but international people wouldn't because Lofty is the voice of so many things. Yeah. He's a TV voiceover guy. 2GB, the radio big show. Big radio stations yeah. and that kind of stuff. So I mean, he's got a marvellous voice. Yeah. And the first time I met Lofty, I heard him speak and embarrassingly I said to him, hey man, your voice is sensational. You should do voiceovers <laughs> or radio. And he goes, oh, funny about that. I actually do. But uh, yeah, and he's been, he's synonymous with uh, like Australian broadcasting and so yeah, forth yeah. because he is, uh, he has such an amazing voice. Yeah, it certainly lends a fair amount of professionalism to two dickheads with microphones. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Really appreciate that he did that for us too because he did that out of love as well. Yeah. That was oh, a love gift you. from Lofty to us. Thank you, Lofty. Yeah. Thank you, Lofty. What are we talking about? So before we do go on to a topic, I just want to recap on last week's episode because we've mm. been getting a bunch of messages about it that it really resonated with people. And I uh, appreciate those messages too. Like, thank you for your vulnerability and letting us know about some of the decisions you've made and have or haven't paid off so well for you or things that you're thinking about getting, which led me into another point as well, is that Panos and Agnostu and Luke put out an episode about Panos getting a puppy mm. and having to give it back because mm. it just completely fucked with his head about his commitments with his life his marriage, his new fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his business is starting to take off. He's one of those people that have fortunately done well for themselves during COVID with all these puppies being bought and uh, high demand for training at the moment. And I got a message off him. He sent me several messages saying, please, brother, can you just talk to me? I've made a mistake with this pup. And I didn't get to him in time. I think we were just going through school holidays or something at the time, but I did make time to call him that night. And you just let me know that he had returned the puppy and he felt very sheepish and foolish about the whole thing. I said, dude, you made the right decision. Like if you were going through that much turmoil, you're better off cutting your losses at that point. And he said, mate, I was all excited about it. He said, I took the dog home and just had some real sleepless nights over it. And he said, I just realized I'd made a terrible mistake. It was just not the right time in my life to do it. And he Mm -hmm. said, you know, like everything sort of came crashing down onto me. And he said, I would have loved to have tried to make it work. And he said, but I just felt like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, be comfortable in your decision. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people make those decisions and stand by it. And then it does end up ruining their life to a degree because you've got this thing for the next 10 to 15 years. You're better off having a time in your life where it is right, where you can commit the time and you can do everything you need to do. And then going ahead with it. Mm. And him and Luke put a podcast out on it. So talk about vulnerability. They really put themselves out there yeah. to own up to something that he made a mistake in. Yeah. Difficult situation, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. I appreciated that from him that he went ahead and, and did something like that because I thought, wow, that's ballsy to do that. Mm-hmm. So good on you, mate. We talked about in the V8 episode about how a lot of these puppies end up turning up and then never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. At least you let people know that sometimes if you do make a mistake, and he went back to the breeder and he spoke to them and exchanged the dog back. Karen and Brad from Monsimbi are good people as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. They would have been understanding about that, which they did. They fully accepted the dog back. It would have been a pain in the ass for everybody, for Panos and for Karen and Brad, of course, but they're all good people and uh, I think they made the right decision collectively. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, when you're getting any puppy, it's got to fit into – you've got to have the capacity to care for Especially it. Especially a working dog. Yeah, you've got to have the capacity to care for it. And, yep. and if you're not in a position to be able to do that, then it's, yep. it's, it's the right thing not to get it. Mm. So anyway, you can uh, hear about Panos and Luke talking about that on Life With Your Dog podcast if you want to hear the episode. 
It's only about, I think it's about 15 minutes long. It's a short episode, but Panos talks about it. He owns up to it and talks about his struggles with it. They're good boys, both Panos and Luke. I really, I've got a lot of time for him. Yeah. Yep. So we are going to talk about, oh, sorry, one more. A lot of housekeeping. Glenn. A lot of housekeeping. Ken? Ken. <laughs> the other thing that I've been getting a lot of messages about is my octopus teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Had a ton of people. Did you end up getting time to watch it? Yeah. So I watched it. Mm. Now, a week ago, if you'd asked me to draw an octopus, not that I can draw, yep. but if you'd said, what does an octopus look like? Yep. I could have described that and drawn you a very rudimental drawing not of it. Not now, right? Now I don't know what an octopus looks like. <laughs> I, I don't even think an octopus does. I have genuinely no idea what an octopus looks like. Yep. The thing that kept fucking with me during that was the scale of it. Yep. Like sometimes it's huge and yeah. then other times it's tiny. Yep. Like it just made no sense to me. I did not realize that octopuses can, octopi can move like that, mm. be like that, do those kinds of things. I had no idea. I can't eat octopus again, which is upsetting. I know. It fucks with your head, right? Yeah. It's kind of like Forrest Gump. It's one of those movies, or it's a documentary, but it's kind of like one of those things that just changes your life when you watch it. Mm -hmm. Like different people have taken different things away from it, which I really appreciated. And it was, you know, I've had some really terrific conversations during the week. I probably had about 10 or 11 people that have messaged me and just said, you know, it's one of those documentaries that I probably want to watch every month or so just to make sure my life's on track Mm. and that I'm keeping true to what I need to do and avoiding burnout. Mm -hmm. Because essentially that's what the story depicts from the the author's viewpoint. Mm. Mm. It's so well done too. And it's such a beautiful documentary. Yeah. And amazing that he filmed that freediving as well. Uh, Incredible. No tanks. Yeah. But the thing I loved about it was filming and editing was his profession. Yeah. And he completely wanted to get away from it. But by loving getting out in the ocean, you know, he took it up again and, yeah. and and made that wonderful documentary. So well done to the whole team, whoever did that with him, the music, everything, everything about it I love from start to finish. I didn't. I'll risk upsetting people Yeah, go ahead. Here. Yeah. I was horrified that he didn't interject when the shark came. And this idea that he said, oh, well, it's nature and I can't intervene. Well, you cross that barrier, mate. Like the second that you put your hand out and – asked the octopus to trust you and it did. And he talks about having taken all of this help from the octopus and the octopus taught him so much. And I mean, the fucking thing's called my octopus teacher for God's sake, right? Yeah. And so he talks about how much the octopus gave to him. Then in its time of need, he filmed it instead of helping it. And I actually was horrified. I thought, fuck this guy. That was hard to watch. Oh, because, you know, I want to maintain integrity of the, like he said that he didn't want to intervene because it's a natural process or whatever. And I was like, mate, that ship sailed. You Mm. have fucked with the natural process the minute you made friends with an octopus. And then you can't, you can't then when the octopus needs you, just be like, wow, look at this amazing footage that I'm getting. Better punch that shark square in its fucking face. I hate to say it, but I probably would have intervened myself. Yeah, you, um, you should have. Yeah. Like, I honestly was horrified that he didn't. And they're, like, if it was a great white, no worries. Okay. Like, it's me or the octopus. Fuck the octopus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but have it, an octopus. It wasn't a shark that could affect him. Mm. Right. So it was, I was thinking, like, man, I was really disappointed and horrified. Like, mm. I couldn't believe that he allowed that to happen. I think it would probably be a moment of high conflict for him, given the way he felt about the octopus. Yeah. It would have been pretty damn stressful. Well, it seemed to me that their relationship was 
all give by her and all take by him. He had the opportunity to assist her and he didn't. Yeah. It was a confronting and conflicting moment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was amazed by it and I thought it was mm. a great show. Yeah. But I just thought that didn't sit it does it continues not to sit well with me. Yeah. I have to admit that was the one part in the show that I often wondered about. And I say this with conviction that if it was me, I would have definitely chased that shark off. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. To me yeah. it looked a lot like here's my my dog and we interact with each other and we live this great life and when this other dog comes and attacks my dog, I have to just go, Well, that's nature. But then again, he did think that the octopus was safe in that crevice. And by the time he got there, it was too late. Like that shark had a hold of it. So again, that's a confronting and conflicting situation because it was safe at that point in time. It had squeezed itself into a rock ledge and that shark was still able to get in there and get to it. So Mm. it's not straightforward as it was just out in the open. And and you don't know, he may have off camera. um, No, he says specifically in it that he chose not to intervene. He did. (laughs) Yeah, he did. He did say that. So I'd, I honestly, I feel like he betrayed the octopus. I feel like the octopus gave him his trust. Yeah. And trust is a bigger thing than just like, you're not going to hurt me, mm. right? It's that, you know, you'll assist me through situations where something else might hurt me. I saw somebody put up, I don't know if it was in the Canaan Paradigm or on Facebook in general, but somebody put up an analogy of trust and it said, Trust comes in drips and leaves in bucket loads. Yeah, I saw that. I think that was uh, that really summarised what trust actually is because it's true. It takes a long time to build trust. It leaves exponentially. Well, you especially know, in, with especially, a wild creature, mm. right? So he built that trust and then in its moment of need, yeah. he was like, this is going to be the best footage. I'm going to film the shit out of this. But did he? He but filmed he? the whole thing. He filmed everything. Yeah. Yeah, he filmed everything. Did he intend to do this as a documentary to share with the world or did he just get all the image and say- I have no idea. Yeah. But so then when she was recovering, he brought food to us. I was like, you crossed the line. Like the line of intervention is there because this wasn't a nature documentary. Like we watch lions eat gazelles and you Mm. go, oh my God. But like we didn't help that lion. Like the lion just was and the film people just filming it. And so that's- filming nature like nature's brutal right but then he was interacting with that octopus he developed he intentionally gained that octopus's trust so you're going to make a bunch of pat stewart haters now on that that show well they, they <laughs> well this is my opinion yeah and, yeah no and if they hate me because of it fucking no not you enough. not hating you hating the hating the, no the show's great yeah the show's great the show's amazing you should everyone should watch it but yeah. i was horrified that he didn't intervene like genuinely i couldn't believe what i was seeing the other thing that on top of that if we're going to be honest about it there were times where when the sharks were around and you know because the octopus would see him and had a had a bond with him that it would expose himself. And that often used to alarm me. Like I'm thinking, you know, like this octopus is trusting him enough to come out of its normal habitat and come over to him. That was worrying to me because I'm thinking, well, now that you've got the relationship through this thing and these little pajama sharks, I think they were called. And they were constantly around the area because he found like a cave of them. Yeah. And he's, you know, like the octopus is seeing him and go, oh, hey friend. And coming over to sort of hang out with him, you know, that sort of breaks the, 
continuity of being safe or yeah. being in, in its natural environment. Yeah. And so it wasn't like a nature documentary of we're just observers and we're seeing what happens naturally. Mm. He was interacting mm. and he he made changes in the environment. And then the big change that needed, when the octopus needed his help, he abandoned her. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the octop- <laughs> my octopus teacher, now you have. Yeah, you don't need to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there is an alarming <laughs> section in there where- uh, it'd be interesting on people's take now that we've just uh, spent 10 minutes talking about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is the Octopus uh, My podcast. Octopus Teacher podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So today's topic, we're going to talk about something that you've heard us talking about on the show before, and that is the phrase, no more, one more time. Mm. And the reason I thought it would be a good time to talk about this in its entirety is because lately I've been seeing a whole bunch of videos mainly in the canine paradigm, but not exclusively to the canine paradigm. I've been seeing them online in other content as well, where people are showcasing skills that they're doing with their dogs. And yet they're doing these exercises one too many times or not even one too many times sometimes, just making multiple mistakes. Mm -hmm. And quite a few people responded to that Stevie Ray Vaughan post that I put up the other day where he said to a young child, if you're going to practice guitar, practice slowly. Otherwise, all you'll be doing is learning your mistakes. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm seeing a lot of people doing in their training as well. And it's they probably got to the point, I think, where they're doing what they consider to be right and they're making a mistake and they're not even realizing they're making the mistake. So they just keep repeating on it. And a long time ago when Esther Schult came out and she did her seminar out here, she was talking about one of the rules in training is that once you develop a chain of behavior, don't break that chain. Don't practice it until the event where you break the chain. And that's what I've seen a few people doing in some of their online demonstrations is they are continually breaking these chains and therefore they're reinforcing the mistake with their dog. So the dog is now learning the mistake is part of the chain, Mm -hmm. which is problematic in itself. Not only am I seeing this online, but students of the NDTF who are sending in some of their scent detection videos for me to appraise for them and find out what's going wrong. During the feedback that I'm having with them, you know, I am saying that quote to them. You're not following the no more one more time rule. You're doing it and doing it and doing it. And I'm not sure why, where you've done it twice successfully that you've gone back and done it a third, fourth and fifth time and made mistakes during those times and ended on that session and then come back the next day and done the same thing over and over again. And I think- I'm realizing more and more is that unmentored people are unaware that they're making these mistakes. They continue to make them. And then when the dog is not responding the way they want, then they're seeking mentorship. Mm-hmm. I guess you and I are going to have a bit of back and forth on this, I'm sure, because I'm almost certain you've seen these same type of videos yourself. But I think what people need to do is make sure, what's that quote you talk about? Mastery is the- Excellence is mastery of the basics. Excellence is mastery of the basics. So I think that a lot of times when people are reaching out and starting to get expansive in what they're actually learning, they really need to work on their foundation skills much more exponentially. They need to explore that and they need to slow down when they're doing these things a little bit. And remember, don't rush. The speed comes later. Mm. You know, the skill and understanding the skill and the integrity of chaining these shaped behaviors together is what students really need to spend time on. Mm. Your thoughts? Yeah. So I think the interesting, that no more, one more time, I think it relates, we've done an episode on the point of diminishing return. Yeah. And and I think it relates to that. 
And I think I regularly find myself drawing this graph. And in most lessons I do with people on this topic, I draw this graph and it's hitting the the peak of the performance, yeah. right? When you're walking, working to peak performance, the only way you can really know that you were at peak performance is when you're no longer at peak performance yeah. and you look back and go, shit, I've gone too far. Yeah. And then there's this issue of trying to decide, well, do I try and chase getting that next good rep, right? Because I've just finished on a, like, I think one of the issues is people still are kind of in that mindset of you have to finish on a good rep. Yep. And that would be ideal, right? Finishing on a good rep would certainly be ideal. But what's more important than that is that there were more good reps than bad reps in the session. Mm. So take, for example, you know, let's use, because it's an example that maybe some people have seen and and I certainly did make mistakes in it when I was teaching Rem to go around that circle, right? Yeah. There's an instance where it doesn't go well. What goes well and then I try again the other direction and it doesn't go well. So I just try and confirm whether it was what I thought it was and then when I figure out that it's not going to work, I stop, right? And because – and I can still call that a good session because he performed the behavior that I wanted more often than he didn't perform the behavior that I wanted. Yeah, that's right. And so overall, we, we're still in the black. We still mm. get to call that a positive session. I think the issue is when people are chasing the good rep, and we've spoken about why you might do that. We'll get to that in a minute. Mm. But that's where you go into a danger zone of finishing on a bad rep is okay. It's not optimal, yep. but it's okay so long as there were more good reps than bad reps. Mm. Right? And I think that the idea that there were more good reps than bad reps is more important than finishing on a high. So what you might see is you're asking for a complex behavior and you ask the dog happily does it three times and you should have finished the session there, but you go for a fourth and it's, it's not good. Right? So on the fourth counts as a bad rep, the fifth still is not great. The sixth is still is not great. The seventh is not great. And then you finally get the the eighth to, to work out or, or ma- let's so that my math adds up, there's another one that doesn't work out. And then finally the ninth is, so you've had five bad reps yep. and one good rep and finishing on that good rep isn't necessarily make it a good session, mm. right? Because what you've done is built like a, a chain within there and chains can be more complex than I think people really understand. Like normally yep. when we talk about a behavioral chain, it's usually like one series of behaviors that leads to a singular reinforcer and everything mm. within that chain gets reinforced. But the whole training session can become a picture to the dog that the dog then goes like, okay, like it's okay to have these dips as long as we, we end up coming up again. Right. And so you may end up that way, but more often than not, you don't get that. And Mm. it's just that it continues to get worse and worse and worse. And why you might do that, we've discussed on the show is really, that's the product of dopamine in your own brain. Right. Mm. So when the dog performs the behavior that you want and your reinforcer is the behavior going correctly. And then when the dog does not perform the behavior adequately, you are being withheld your reinforcer. And so you are then at a variable reinforcement schedule. Mm. And so of course you try harder. And so what's happening, I think is that you and the dog's brain chemistry are now at opposite ends, right? So you're getting more reinforced. But, well, the lack of reinforcement causes more desire to perform the behavior are you and saying so, they're on an intermittent schedule, sir? Yeah, so mm. you're on so you are on an intermittent schedule with the mm. dog, right? So you're gonna keep trying harder because your reinforcer is the behavior being performed. Mm. But when the behavior is not necessarily being performed correctly and we're no longer reinforcing because of it or whatever, now the dog's at an intermittent schedule, but 
going the opposite way, yeah. right? Because he doesn't know the behavior adequately enough to beat an intermittent schedule where that will make the behavior better. Mm. He's no longer being reinforced. And so we're using, say, negative punishment at that point by saying like, nope, that's not a good enough version, restart. And if he doesn't truly understand the behavior, yeah. then negative punishment isn't going to make the behavior any better. And right? now you're at a conflict crisis with each other. Yeah. So mm. when you're going to talk about like dopamine levels mm. in – yours and the dogs are spiking in opposite directions. Yours is going higher because you're like, God damn it, I've got to chase this. And that, that mild feeling of frustration that we yep. know is addictive, like, uh, you know, that's an addictive feeling. Mm. In that book, I can't remember the guy's name, but, you know, were they able to put electrodes into people's brains? You can make yourself feel however you would like to feel. And what people find themselves constantly doing over and over is that mild frustration, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a very that's a very natural state for us to be in. I suppose it's evolutionary. You should be like, you know, hunting or, or gathering or whatever, but it's that mild, that call to action. I'll yeah, just try it again. You to move. I'll just try it again. Yeah. I'll just try it again, right? Mm -hmm. Over and over. And so that's a very easy state to find yourself in. And while you're feeling like that, the dog's going the opposite. He's like, fucking hell, this is getting less and less payment and and I'm it's less and less clear to me what we should do. Mm. And I think that's the worst case scenario, right? Like that's the worst case is that you then make training, you know, unpleasant for the dog and still unpleasant for you, but kind of just not unpleasant enough to make you stop, right? So you're getting that that pressure that continues to make you want to do it. And this is how you see a lot of people burn out their dogs. And it's what we were talking about last week when mm. you talk about, you know, people who this is going to be my competition dog. He's going to get it. And they overdo it with puppies. Yep. I think what people sort of could maybe have misunderstood in what we're talking about there is it's fine to teach puppies anything you want. You can teach puppies absolutely anything. And if the training is correct and the techniques are correct and you never push the puppy past like what it actually knows when you ask for a behavior. And that's one of the things with dog training in general is it always should be dictated by the puppy or the dog. Yeah. You know, that's how the training cycle should be successful. Yeah. But so what I'm saying is you see, people who have a little six-month-old dog that knows everything mm. and it works out fine mm. and it's because they never push that dog past where like past that confusion point so okay look at like omar von Mueller, right yep like you look at that dog that he's got a monkey monkey now? the belgian shepherd yeah like unbelievable number of behaviors on a very young dog yeah right like outrageous yeah so he's the exception that kind of proves the rule because he's taught that dog so many things as a very young age, but the dog's always clear on what is being asked of it and yep. finds value in the behavior. Yeah. And that's fine. Like you can teach any dog anything yep. so long as that's part of the criteria. The dog understands part of your criteria is the dog's clear on the behavior. Like yep. I know what we're going for here. Yeah. Right. And is finds value in doing it. There's no issues there. It's when you ask for too much too soon. Yeah. That's where you end up crushing these little dogs. And then there leads to confusion. And even if you're force free, like it's not necessarily, I think people misunderstand us when we say you're crushing the dog because you put too much pressure on the dog. And they, yeah, they think it's physical pressure. Yeah. They're mm. imagining a, a slip lead or, you know, like something that's, or, you know, physically manipulating the dog. And that's not what we mean. We mean pressure of like, what's the, you know, more ethereal style pressure of the pressure of like, you have to perform. Mm. Right. And so we're inferring the stress that we have in this dog needs to be able to do these behaviors into the dog of doing the behaviors before the dog really knows it. Right. Mm. And I think that's what usually comes to relate it back to what we we're talking about last week, where it's okay. This is the dog. This is the one that's going to make me look good yep. is that 
maybe you're asking for more than you're giving, mm. right? Because you are not capable. Like this, the dog should get this. I've been teaching it for a week, right? Why doesn't he know it? And it's like, well, you're not teaching adequately enough for him to understand it, right? Mm. And so maybe you just need to go slower, take more time, right? And you, on the next dog, you'll have it done in one week. But with your skill set at this time and with this dog, this is a two-week process, right? So don't rush it. So long as the dog's clear on what's happening, continues to find value in it, you'll be fine. Yep. It's only when you then say to the dog you've done incorrectly there's no value in that and you then withhold from the dog or you pressure the dog into it whatever it is you do but if the dog doesn't know he made a mistake mm. and then is receiving pressure that compels him beyond what is reasonable or is having things withheld from him when he doesn't understand the mistake yeah. that's that's where the, the problem comes yeah robbing the dog or any species for that matter robbing them of a control mechanism is in my opinion, that's my definition of cruelty. Mm. You know, when people talk about physical punishment, uh, psychological punishment, whatever, I said, as long as it's justified, as long as you know how to control the frequency of it and can avoid it or stop it or, you know, move to an alternate behavior, that's fine. But when you have no idea what you're doing, when it is unclear to you and it's happening over and over and you're in that conflict crisis together, that's my opinion of a cruel session. Yeah, and so that speaks to really understanding where is my dog at and his perception of the criteria of the behavior yeah. that I'm, I'm teaching? Mm. Because, you know, like withholding a reinforcer is fantastic for many reasons. It could be a punishment because the dog didn't perform the, the correct thing. Mm. And if your behavior is on command and you tell the dog to do it and he doesn't do it, and then you go, okay, well, I'm not reinforcing you for that. And therefore I'm going to end the session. That can be really good, right? Yep. Like that can be a really helpful thing. It can. But if the dog is unclear on exactly what you want and he tries an alternate behavior and you end the session there, then that can crush the dog's willingness mm. to explore with behaviors because it's not that he was being belligerent or disobedient. He was not being disobedient because the, he couldn't obey because he didn't understand what obeying was, right? Yeah. So being able to un identify that is really, really important. Mm. Otherwise, I think people will push the dog to the point where, you know, ending the session or like withholding whatever it is, a reinforcer in any case, can actually then be very demotivating rather than motivating next time because mm. the dog's like, fuck, I don't know what this is. I don't, I don't know how to get it right. Yeah. Right. Like, so keeping small increments clear paths to the dogs. And this is one of the reasons I uh, advocating and teach with my own dogs and dogs that I interact with is very progressive learning. So yep. like, you know, I'm constantly so people always like pay your one trick pony teaching dogs to go to a marker board. And I'm like, yeah, but I get a bunch of behaviors from that. Mm. And so that's like a key foundation thing that I want because from that I'll get a bunch of other behaviors that happen really naturally. Right. Yep. And so it's very incremental learning. Like I'm not going to ask for a dog to keep its front feet still in a sit down and stand without first teaching it about a physical barrier that are for its front feet in order to avoid that happening, right? So just little things like that, like it's chunking, breaking things into their mm. smallest component part. Yep. That's a, a very important and very salient point is the subject matter of increments because your interpretation of increments might vary from my interpretation of increments. Totally. And it certainly does when I see this with new trainers coming into the realm is they come in, they're starting to th – well, I talk about it millimetres, centimetres and metres mm -hmm. and this is what people tend to do and it's the – you know part of the teaching method I talk about in NDTF a lot is I say – Young trainers tend to come in with meters. Better experienced trainers work in centimeters. Masters work with millimeters. Yeah. And that's what 
people really need to work on. And if the dog is ready to work with centimetres and metres, the dog dictates the speed and the duration of what you're actually doing in training. Yeah. Great observation. I like it. I think one of the things on that is the more you spend, the more time you spend training dogs, you realise like that things... I don't know if this is the right word, but I'll have to explain it, is like the subtension rule, right? Where like changes by a very small degree at the at the narrow end mm. become changes by a very large degree at the big end, yep. right? So subtension is a term that means like basically expanding over time, over distance, yep. right? We would use- so That's like the, marksman shooting. It's the yeah, same sort it is. Of thing. That's, if you that's wobble what, the barrel around. That's exactly, that's yep. where it comes from. So yep. like in the army, we, mm. we use this term. So you know you- there's 360 degrees in a circle, yep. right? Well, we don't have that the army, right? So that's a mathematical system called DMS, degrees, minutes, seconds, right? Yeah. 360 degrees. We use milliradians. And so in a circle, there's 6,400 milliradians, right? And you go, well, that's a stupid number, but it makes everything else metric. Okay. So the degree by milliradian. So if you imagine like a degree of angle, yep. right? Like one degree, there's like 17.7 roughly degrees into one, uh, sorry, mils into one degree, mm. right? So what we know of subtension is that one mil at 1,000 meters is one meter wide, Yep. right? So it makes everything metric by that, right? And so you and understand- some mass egghead would have really worked this out. Yeah, yeah, that's it. right. Well, yeah. it fits geometry perfectly. Yeah. And yep. so the idea is you only make, and it's like shooting, is that like, so- the majority of our audience is America, so we can talk. Um, in America, they use minutes of angle. And so that's basically an inch. A minute of angle is basically an inch at 100 meters or 100 yards, right? And so to move your barrel, a minute of angle mm. is barely moving it, right? Like it's a, a nothing move yep. at the barrel end causes a big change at the bull end, Absolutely. right? And I feel like what I'm trying to explain, now we've taught people how to shoot, yeah. is- <laughs> is that that's the same with a lot of behavioral changes in dogs, yep. right? A very minor change at the production end yep. can be a very big change at the observable end, yep. right? And I think the more experience I get, the more I am willing to play in those very small changes that have very big effects, mm. right? Whereas I think sometimes when you try and take on those very big effects, you're then pushing, like, you know, think about it in moving an obstacle. You're going to have to move that obstacle the full meter at, yep. the, at the other end. Whereas if I can just steer it from the start to go the right way just a tiny little bit, it's going to end up where I wanted it to much further down the track. Mm, Yeah, that's a clever analogy. And I think that relates especially to puppy training and that sort of thing where we're setting the dog up. And so when I'm I'm teaching a bunch of behaviors, like I say, I'm eventually going to teach a send away where I want my dog to sprint, you know, as far as I tell him to in a straight line, right? That's what I want. And I would never try to teach that to my dog. What I teach my dog is to find a marker board or a clack clack or something like that. And it's right in front of him. Yep. Right? And so then it doesn't take long before that sub tensions out to like, he just believes that there's a clack clack over the horizon and mm. goes running out to that. Right. But I wouldn't start trying to teach my dog to run that far away. Yep. It starts out literally like a step in front of him. There mm. it is. Come back to me. And it builds and builds and builds. And so, I think clarity in the young dogs is very important in that way, right? Like never, that's what I mean by not overdoing it. You can train all day. If you've got the right dog, if he's hungry enough and you have the motivation and you have the play and the games and all that sort of stuff, Mm. the dog is learning 
all day, yeah. right? Every minute, every moment of every day, the dog is taking in information, processing it, and deciding how that relates to his world. Well, I think we've established that as a science point that exactly. science is, is mainly observation. Exactly, right? And so the dog's all- doing that nonstop. Nonstop. And so- it's not to say that you shouldn't be training your dog nonstop. Yeah. And when we talk about like training sessions, the one of the reasons I talk about keeping sessions small is short, like three to five minutes or whatever, something like that, is not because you shouldn't train for longer than that. It's because if you're using food, you want the value of the food to be large, the delivery, the amount of reinforcement to be high Right, and you can only do that a few times. Otherwise, it's when people want to train for a long period of time that they get into the very shitty deliveries of food. And will they teach the behaviors? Yeah, they'll probably teach the behaviors quicker. Mm. But the behaviors will carry the value of a much lower grade reinforcer than if you're using a, a the same reinforcer food yep. in, but only doing three to five reps means that we have to now. If I've, my budget's a hundred kibbles, I can deliver those three to five reps in big chunks and put more value into it. Mm. But some dogs, one kibble is the same as a hundred kibbles. They don't give a shit, right? Yep. So then they're the dogs that you can train for longer with. And if you're going to train with food, that puts you onto one schedule of delivery of reinforcement and one capacity to deliver. But if you're going to pl- train with play or toys or something like that, and of course you should, that puts you onto another. And now you're dealing with the dog's satiation or becoming tired, right? Yep. Yep. And that's the exact same problem that we face is that people can become aversive, especially with the very high drive dogs when we're dealing with working dogs. Mm. Like my dog will kill himself if not moderated, yep. right? And good working dogs will. They don't pay attention to their own bodies. And so- what will happen is he will work so long as I keep asking him to work. He'll keep taking the ball. So long as I keep offering it, he'll keep working for it. Yep. But then there's a real risk of training becoming aversive because mm-hmm. then he's like, man. Then he'll I, damage himself. Yeah. Well, mm. post-training, he'll feel terrible. He'll yep. be he'll be injured. He'll be unwell from having exerted himself too much. And so that the conditioned effect is training makes me feel bad afterwards, yeah. right? And that's the problem with drivers we've talked about in past episodes is drive blocks fear and pain. Yeah. You know, and those sort of situations can be aversive. And I have seen that in the past where dogs are pulled up sore or injured or it's created an aversive where they've become sickly after a training session because they push themselves to that physical exertion and broken down. And yeah, again, it's a fault of the handler going past that no more one more time principle yeah. and not doing what we just talked about in observation skills, having good observation skills with the dog on the field. Yeah. Remember earlier in the year, it was either right at the end of last year or early in the year, we cancelled club training one day because of how hot it was. And it was just because like, you know, we could easily train within the heat, no yeah. problem. But my assessment was the risk wasn't worth the reward, right? For yeah. the one training session to train in that freakish heat. Yeah, we could have just got the dogs out and done small sessions and it would have been fine. But it was 44 degrees. Exactly. Yeah. And remember, because we recorded the podcast that night and it was when I got back into my car leaving. It was 35 it was, degrees. Yeah, it was still in the 30s right? yeah. at like 10 p.m. at night. And yep. so we could have for sure trained the dogs, but- for one training session that the step forward had so much potential risk of a step backwards mm. in that someone overexerted their dog and it happened on our field where trials happen. And then the dog goes, that's a place where I have left feeling terrible. Right. And it just wasn't worth the risk of doing that. But it's not just the dog aversion too. It's the handler aversion that, that can create out of it from having a bad session like that totally. and then having a medical issue with your dog. Totally. At ADT in the early days, I've seen people who have pushed their dogs to the point, had a bad response and never turned up for training again. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about when you're talking about no more one more time is that 
what happens is imagine the dog does the behavior a few times and then we go for, you know, here's the next rep and it doesn't go well. So we don't reinforce. That's a really interesting, I think there's a rabbit's hole in that that we can go down <laughs> on like when you don't reinforce, what is, what quadrant are you in, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know. Well, that's about perception, isn't it? That's right. And mm-hmm. it's about why didn't the behavior go very well. Yep. And I think that this is where training becomes a little bit more art than science, but we have to totally understand the, we have to really understand the science yep. and then apply that well, to Well, that's a wavering art. line between the two of those. Yeah. Mm. Right. And so- Imagine you've got your dog doing your behavior. Let's make up some bullshit behavior going around a cone, yep. right? Like, let's just say that, right? So the dog goes around the cone and you've been teaching it. It's all sweet, right? And you go, okay, I'm going to go to a variable schedule of reinforcement. Mm-hmm. The dog goes around the cone. He comes back. You tell him to go again. It goes great. He comes back. You tell him to go again for a third time. And he goes out near the cone, but doesn't go around it. So now you're in this weird position, right? Yeah. Because again, in our made up scenario, is the dog offering a new behavior? Is he not doing the behavior that you've asked for, right? Of going around the cone because he's proven that he can do that, mm. right? He's proven he did it two times and on the third, he didn't. Yep. So a lot of people would look at that and go, he's getting lazy. He's belligerent. He is intentionally disobeying. There's a lot of things that we could say. And those three things allow us to use pressure to compel the behavior, yep. right? If the dog says, nah, fuck you, I know exactly what, but I'm not doing it, right? Or if he says, no, I'm more interested in this other thing, so I'm not doing it, okay? Or like, no, I'm straight up giving you a refusal because this is a challenge, right? Like those are three things where I then go, okay, no worries. Like now we use pressure, right? Like Mm. we've got to show you it's inevitable. You have to do it. But that's probably not the reason the dog's not doing it, right? And that's what most people- Could be from the process of extinction Exactly. Mm. So the dog has performed the behavior- Mm. And that he knows and has been on a consistent schedule for. And he goes, sweet, where's my payment? Yep. And you go, ah, no, variable reinforcement schedule. The dog goes, oh, variable reinforcement schedule. That spikes my dopamine. Let me do it harder, better, faster. Try again for you. Yep. He does it. And then you go, wow, that was such an awesome increase in criteria yep. from non-reinforcing one time. Mm. I wonder how good an increase in criteria I'll get from not reinforcing a second time. So we don't reinforce that second time. We ask the dog to perform the behavior. Yep. And in the dog's mind, he says, something's not right. Mm. I've done the behavior that I thought it was. He didn't pay me. I've done the that same behavior to the absolute best of my ability. Yep. He didn't pay me. Yep. He must want something else. I'm confused, right? Yep. So now our dog goes out and he stands near the cone or maybe he bites it or he barks at it or whatever. And now- we're in that old model of he's belligerent, he's intentionally disobeying, he knows, so we use pressure to compel the dog into it, mm. right? And the dog goes, fuck my life, yep. right? Not only am I no longer being paid for this behavior, yep. but now if I try and offer something else that would bring payment, all I do is put myself in a position of pressure, yep. right? So that's the issue of, I think, of the no more, one more time. Yeah, is one of them. Is Mm. when you don't identify that the dog is not making a mistake, Mm. you have made the mistake by not reinforcing early enough and the dog is offering new behavior, new criteria because he thinks this is what you want. Like we learned this incrementally, right, and now you've stopped paying me so we have to continue to to find what the actual behavior is, right? And he might end up doing two spins around the cone or something like that instead of the one. So he might stop or in this case it might be two spins around and 
If you were looking to build a behavior of him running around the cone multiple times, that would be fine. Mm. But if you're using that cone as a means to uh, become a, a blind and you're going to do IGP and you want him to search the blind, you teach him to go around that. And now he does two laps around it. That's going to make you look like an idiot on the field, right? So knowing exactly where you're at in your reinforcement schedule and choosing to reinforce wisely. But I think that's important, right? And that's science. We mm. can gauge that. That's the science part of it. From my point of view, I think that the art comes in when we then know what is the perception of the dog at this moment. Perception is one of those things I keep coming back to. Not only in dog training, we talk about it in staffing as well. Perception of when people are in conflict with each other. Sometimes you need to stop attacking it. What's that saying? It's a, I think it's an Einsteinian quote is that, in order to solve a problem, you have to go at it with a different mindset than one you created. Mm. It's along those lines. And that's a principal matter I often think about when I'm in conflict with staff or if I'm in conflict with dogs while I'm on the field training them or with a client or anything like that. Perception is one thing that I'm continually coming back to. Mm. What is the perception of the other mind in this argument? I'm thinking along the lines of something. What are they thinking? Yeah. Because if you don't take that into account, this is where you are in true conflict with each other. Yeah. And what is the history that's leading to the dog performing yeah. that behavior? Yeah. So one that's interesting to me at the moment is I've been trying to fix Remy's stand quite a bit. So we're doing a lot of work trying to get rid of the bark, right? Yep. And he creeps forward. That's not an issue for me too much because it's not too like it's not too bad. And but what I am trying to do is just make his stand a bit more reliable and get rid of the bark. Yep. It's just something to work on. There's no stand in PSA. It's just something to do. So it's getting pretty good. Yeah, I watched your uh, Instagram feed. So the other night I put him, we're doing obedience. I mm. want to do a lot of obedience. Jazz is agitating him because we're, you know, in level twos. So whenever I have access to some good conflict, i.e. the decoy, I try to take advantage of that. So yep. she's agitating him and he'll sit down, stand, no problem, on the floor and then just to practice different things, because one of the things we have to do in the PSA, in the level two, in PSA level two, is put the dog in a car or a trailer or something for the call off, right? So the, the dog has to be able to go onto a platform, be told to get onto a platform, not allowed to touch the dog, right? You'll lose points if you do. So that's one of the things we practice. I just put him on stuff. Get up there. That's his command. Get up. Mm -hmm. So what we had in the training area was the bark box. So I told him get up. And- he can sit and he can down on the bark box, but I'm, and I'm down. Yeah, sweet. So I go into out of sight. I'm in the the little, the room and I'm yelling it and jazz. I say, sit. And she says, yeah, he's done it. I tell down. Yeah, he's done it. I say, stand. No, nah, didn't do it. So I'm like, shit. So I go out, I use some pressure, sort of convince him to go into it. The moment I'm not in the picture anymore, he won't stand. He mm -hmm. doesn't want to stand. And I'm thinking, okay, the stand is not where I thought it was. Yep. Right. But, he only ever does defensive work on that bark box and he does that in the stand. Yep. Right. So what would be really easy as a trainer to do is go, fuck you. This, you know, this, Yeah. you know, stand, right? Like I'm going to use a lot of pressure because you know this, mm. I'm going to force you to fucking do it. You are being belligerent. Yep. But what I think was happening, the more I think about it is he's telling me, I'm going to bite her in the fucking stand. Like that puts me into an emotional state because all the bite work I've ever done on this thing has been me in fear of my life. This mm. is where we put him in defense, right? Yep. And he said his emotional state is when I'm standing on here and he knows he's not meant to bite, mm. right? 
he thinks if she's that close to me, I'm going to snatch the first thing I can get. And I can't keep my head clear enough not to do that. So he keeps putting himself into a sit or a down. Yeah. Right? And what I think is probably happening is he's just chosen the lesser of the two evils, right? Because he knows, I know I'm not meant to bite in this obedience. Without permission to bite, I'm not allowed. But on the bark box, when someone's in fucking striking distance, I'm biting them, right? Yeah. And I can hold the down and I can hold the sit, but all the biting I've ever done on here has been in the stand. Right now, I could be totally wrong. Could be totally misreading that, but that's an interesting thing to me to say. Why can he sit down, stand perfectly everywhere else, and he can do it in front of the decoy on a field and in his position board and just on the normal floor? That's all fine. Mm. But when he's on the bark box, he can't hold a stand reliably. Right? It is an interesting observation, and again, it emphasizes the point of perception. And I'm saying this through observation of years of doing it myself. And I find that when I've been training dogs in high points of arousal, that they often go back to the strongest exercise that they feel most comfortable exactly. in. So they go into their default positions rather than exercises that you're practicing with or have a degree of weakness in them because they don't know them well enough and they're not practiced enough in them. This, again, this is perception. It's just through observation because my own dogs and clients' dogs, I've watched them because I've often thought the same thing. Like, why won't the dog do this? It's an exercise that we've started to delve in and the dog's having a degree of success with it, but it doesn't have as strong as success as it does with something like a sit or a drop where it feels mm-hmm. far more comfortable and far more in control of it. And it's more reflexive at that point in time yeah. as well. That could be a reason why. I don't know. Again, it's perception. You know, like you just watch enough dogs do it and you think, oh, that could be the missing link of what I'm missing in training is the dog just doesn't feel practiced enough with this mm-hmm. and it's not ingrained enough. It still fumbles around in this exercise because stand really for people who don't practice it. It's an exercise that does create conflict between a handler and a dog, Yeah, which it's is very unnatural. It is very unnatural compared to sits and drops, but it's also the reason why, which I kind of think it was ingenious when we did it at ADT was the default position at ADT was stand. Boyd wanted to be different to what everybody else was. And because it was a working dog group, he said, all dogs are standing in the default position. So we had strength in stand. But, you know, like you throw in another exercise such as sit where they weren't as strong as or have reliability in that exercise, we would see the stumble in those exercises, Mm. where I would at least. So again, through observation or perception, that's what I'm drawing a correlation to. Yeah. So that kind of speaks to exactly what I'm talking about in that, mm. like he knows stand. Yeah. Right. And he's a pretty, what's he it? knows he's it, a but it's, it's, it's newly introduced. Yeah. And, yeah. But he's a pretty biddable dog as well. He like is. he's not belligerent. He doesn't, he, he likes to work. He yep. doesn't, he, there's he no, there's no, um, there's no conflict between us in regards to dominance. It's mm. not like he ever intentionally doesn't do what I say to fuck me around. Mm. Like there's dogs that do that, right? But like he, if he knew it, he would do it, right? Yeah. If he were capable of doing that, if he knew that's what I wanted, he would do it. And so when you're in a position like that, this is where we talk about using too much pressure, right? And now yeah. he's not a puppy, but blah, blah, blah. But it's a, that's a crossroads for me where I can go left or I can go right and I can use a lot of pressure and convince him, no, you're fucking standing. I know you know this and you're going to do it or what I have chosen. And in some cases I would do that depending on timeline, there's lots of different things, right? Like if I had to teach him to stand, that's what I'm going to do. Like, Hey man, you have to do this, right? And we're going to stop the session and focus on this until you get it. And then we're going to reinforce, right? See, that's a good point on whether you have to. Yeah. 
So it's a, there's a timeline thing to it. So yeah. again, it's just something I'm working on. It's not in yep. PSA. So instead I go, all right, I see that's an issue for you, right? We'll get you off the bark box. We'll change some things around. And I know some stuff about my stand now, right? Yep. I know like where and when I can use it. And that's not to say I'm going to accept that that's just how life is. Like yep. he's going to sit down, stand on that bark box. Let me tell you, it's mm. going to happen. But not that night. Right. Like, so I'm going to like have a more of an investigation and figure out how can I bring this about? How can I change your emotional state? What work do I need to do on that bark box to change things? Because I realize as well, he's never been on there other than to do bite work. But see, now you're thinking in millimeters, like you usually do. That's right. Like you're a millimeter guy. Yeah. And that's the importance of mastery in your training is is seeing that and thinking to yourself, today is not a centimeter day, it's a millimeter day. Yeah. So of course- with enough pressure, I could have made him stand right there and then it would have happened. And I did try some pressure, but a little bit, right? And just a touch on his belly, which is a tactile commander stand. And when he ignored that, that's when I said, okay, nah, like this is, this is not right. Something's not right here. Because you have to think about the end outcome for that if you push through it. That's right. Right. Mm. And because this is a place where he's meant to be powerful and on the bark box, like he's meant to be, you know, a real aggression, right? Bring it out. Show me what you got. And then to find himself being forced into doing something else Mm. in the place where we spent years convincing him that he's a monster. Like it just, there's, there's conflict there that I can avoid. And that's where you use the analogy of that target shooting. Exactly. Where does the bullet go after that? That's right. So the hard work would be to force Mm. that bullet a full meter over. Absolutely. Here's the thing to go back to it. I only need to move that bullet one milliradian, yep. right? One or one minute of angle, if that's what you, if whatever it is, whatever you understand. Mike I only, would understand everything. Oh, he would get it all that, right? Yep. But I only need to move it mm. one degree. Yep. Now, at the target end in front of the decoy, that is the fucking big movement. That's yep. a major muscle movement. That's me pushing the bullet a long way over yeah, and figuring yeah. out how to do that. But if I go back to the barrel end and I all I need to do is get in there and do some food sessions yep. on that and fix it there, I'm going to move it the one degree it needs to move mm. and it's still going to be effective at the other end, yep. right? It's going to be where I wanted to put it, but I moved it the easy way, not the hard way. Yeah. And as I say, if I needed that in that session, I could have done it. There's yep. no, I have no doubt I could have done that, right? But then there's risks, right? And so I know how to mitigate those risks, and yep. but you've got to make that decision in that moment why am I prepared to take the risk of this pressure in order to get that behavior to happen, right? And of course, there's reasons you would do that. One of the things that's constantly sort of been playing on my mind, I think Ben Lipensky said the the almost exact same words when we're talking about he's interested in, you know, various techniques. When I asked him about what freedom of action he has to train the bomb dogs, you know, how much reach down does he get from Jerry? He's like, no, no, I can do whatever I want. And I'm interested in any technique that will bring that on Mm. within the timeframe allotted. Yeah. Right. They're not his exact words, but to paraphrase. Right. And so that's one of the reasons we, we often train a particular way is because mm. we have a time frame around that. Well, this is a behavior I'm doing just out of interest myself. So there is no time frame, mm. right? Like if I never, if it takes me six years, well, it was, we had a fun six years figuring it out. But see, that's a good point is what's the difference between one training session and five training sessions? A whole lot. Yeah. That's one of the points where I've had to really pull myself back because I have to constantly think of that no more, one more time paraphrase to myself where there's sessions where I get impatient. And I'm thinking for what? Yeah. 
What's the like, what? What was the point in pushing it today when I can do it Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday? That's right. You know, why does it have to be this session yeah, that I get this complete? I can chip away with it. Yeah. You know, the dog and I, we can troubleshoot through it together, and we can have success based on it rather than one big fail session, which is going to have. It could be a lifelong problem for us. Yeah, you know, something that I'll never really get rid of because now. Yeah. And God forbid you create a single event learning process where the dog goes, fuck it, I'm out. You yeah. Know, I'm totally uninvested. Now this behavior is aversive. Right. Again, that's perception related because you might not think it's a big thing, but to the dog it is. Yeah. yeah. A, it can be a very big thing, something that you'll never entirely shed. It's like when we create some of these superstitious behaviors, like the barking and behaviors and so forth. At the time you thought, oh, I can deal with this. And, you know, if you have time and you can be a little bit more patient, sometimes it may not have happened at all. Mm. But that's all part of learning in these processes as well. It's just that you don't want to continually make these mistakes and then have it bite you in the ass when you are trying to do things like competition and every point is precious. And then they start flowing out the other end. So that's the reason for the no more one more time is why do you need one more? Like, what is it about getting another ego. rep that's important it's, in this session? Most of the time it's ego. Yeah. So, But there could be reasons. That's, I yeah. think that's one of the things that we have to acknowledge is mm. sometimes you are on a timeline, right? Yep. And, yes, that's different. Agencies uh, are, are stricken with timelines. Yeah, but also in the sports as well. Like, you remember when we were training for – when I was going to do the PDC. So I did the PDC in the level one on the same trial, right, yep. same weekend. And the week – prior we're doing a decoy certification and because we're short dogs we had to use dogs that we're going to trial on mm. the weekend yep. four days earlier to yep. train decoys mm -hmm. and so my dog was prepping for level one i knew he could handle the pressure of the carjacking of uh, so he's prepping for the pdc i knew he could handle the pressure of the carjacking for the level one so i hadn't shown him the full pressure picture but he got to see that full pressure picture in the the decoy the decoy sets. training right yep which involves full pressure from a decoy, hidden sleeve. And inexperienced decoys too. Inexperienced decoys, mm. but firing a gun. Yep. So my dog, who went from totally neutral to gunfire, four days from trial, goes to full really gamut. fucking highly aroused hidden sleeve bite mm. at the sound of the gun. I've got four days to fix that. Right before the trial when he has to hold a long down with two gunshots. Yep. So that's when you can go, all right, I have a hole in my program now mm. be created by a situation and I have four days to fix it because if I, I know I can do the PDC no problem because there's not going to be gunshots in the down or there is no down. Yep. But if I want to get that one, I can either fix this problem in four days or I can wait 12 months. Mm. Right. But you can still space those four days out. Yeah. But that's, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. we did fix it and he, he held the down yeah, and he it, did. no problem. Well, some problems, but, <laughs> but, he, but he held it. Right. Yeah. But that was a time where I go, no, you're holding it down. Like we've got four days to teach you to hold it down and you're going to hold that goddamn down in four days, right? Yeah. But if that were a problem that I just encountered in training, like on an, any normal day and I've got months before the, the trial, yeah. I would have fixed that problem differently, Yeah. right? And it's not like I was unethical to my dog. It wasn't anything like that. It, it was genuinely that we- It just puts haste behind well, it. What I showed him that there was- discomfort in leaving the down mm. as well as reinforcement for staying in the down, yep. right? Whereas if I had a bigger timeline, I would have been more, I would have put way more value into staying in the down than the large amount of value I put in, the discomfort I put into leaving the yep. down, right? No big deal, right? Mm. But he got it, it's fine. But 
the same behavior, I would have taught different ways depending on my timeline. Mm. And that, that's what I think when we relate to when you're teaching a young dog stuff, especially a puppy, like who gives a fuck whether your dog can down in this session or the next one? Yep. Right? Like, and, and if you did two reps and the third one went badly, don't chase the fourth because mm. who cares? Right? The only people that cares are your Instagram followers. Right? Mm. And you could just not put that video up today. <laughs> like you could do that. I remember years ago, I was in the shed with my grandfather and he used to work on TVs. That was his hobby, fixing old TVs and radios, just getting me out of the house away from my nana sometimes, I think. And we were sitting down there one day and he was a man of few words, but he often had some sage advice. And he said to me, the older you get, the more you realize that time is valuable. And it often contemplated that point because as I said, he didn't really say a lot of things, but I think that time is valuable no matter what. And the older you get, the more you do reflect on that because you know that time is running out, you know, and it could run out for any of us anytime, but you just realize you just don't have the time left that you once had. But I think if I can give advice to people, and I do appreciate that people do listen to things that you and I say on this podcast, and it is time is precious no matter what age you are. The time that you've got on the field with your dog, it's all precious. Every single moment that you go out there, the things that you do with your dog, the games you play, the training sessions that you do, you know, it really should be a good session, as good as it possibly can be, as much investment as you can be into learning what you actually did out there, rather than just going out there and paraphrasing or parrot fashion, performing something, think about what you're doing, like have a bit of a game plan. Mm. And if you do see it going south, stop the session. Yeah. I remember you talking about that when you were doing the circle exercise on Patreon with Remy, you know, when you just had a fuck up day and you just said, I don't know what to do here. I'm just going to end the session. Well, what better advice could you give anyone? Yeah. And that's, you know, there's times where I go out and goof around with Randy and I'm doing something and I can see I had a plan. It's just not going to plan now. And I just end the session or I change it a little bit later on. So he doesn't think that it's linked together. I change it to something later on where I can do something else away from what we just did. And then we can end the session well together, Mm. but I just don't want him to correlate that bad session and then think, Oh, well that was what we came out here to do. I kind of want him as best as he possibly can is just to forget about that for now, Mm. like not to invest anything into it as best as I possibly can. It's like laughing at a child when they swear. And I know you've been through this with Rip where you and Jane have done this is, Mm -hmm. you know, you really don't want to reinforce that behavior and have them put invest too much and remember too much about that behavior. You kind of want them to think there's nothing in it. There's no investment in that. I'm just going to forget about that because I don't gain anything from that. And that's more and more what I'm trying to do with my own dogs when I'm playing with them or doing something. And by all means, I know we've talked about this before. I'm not perfect. I've met the perfect trainer. I've met the perfect person in life. I know we all make mistakes. We all do things that are regrettable and there's times where we go out and think we're going to have an awesome session that goes to shit. Sometimes we really take it hard on ourselves as well. The main thing is learn from it. For God's sake, learn from it. Like really let that still be, I mean, it's a lesson anyway. So you might as well learn what you learn from it and try not to repeat it again, Mm. you know, because there's going to be times where you're going to go out and that perfect session ain't going to be so perfect. Yeah, yeah. Something I was just thinking about when you're talking then. Mm. It's one of the benefits of training in a group or second a club. set of eyes. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's an immediate set. So yep. one of the things, you know, we see it all the time is we we see the video and we go, Oh, too many. Like you did yep. too many reps. And and even we look at it ourselves and you go, Oh fuck, I went, I went way too far. Mm. I've gone over the edge here. And that's great on a video. And when the camera's on a tripod, that's what should happen. Yeah. But when the camera's being held by someone, that person should be like, hey, hey. Stop. Stop. Yeah. Right. And I think that 
I think that's an important thing to first of all heed that advice when it's given to you. Yeah, and doesn't matter what stage of life or how along the line of a trainer you are, never be too egotistical that if somebody can see something which is going south, if they point it out to you, maybe stop and listen to them. Yeah, and mm. and also I think that it's one of those things. Of course, you have to tread lightly. Like if you're the junior person and you're training with a more experienced person, is to when you understand the brain chemistry. You could be way less skilled as a trainer, yep. but if you're observing someone get caught into that feedback loop, you can say to them, hey, I think you might be chasing yeah. a dopamine. There's a respectful spot, way to do it, of right? course. Yeah. yeah, like how you discuss with people, that's another topic, but yeah. you're probably going to be able to do that person a favor by breaking them out of it. Mm. And you know, I think there's a maturity level to that and understanding, like, again, when you understand the brain chemistry, you can understand how you are addicting yourself to the process. Mm. And so then you can say, oh shit. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Like, even though it might be someone who couldn't have a snowball's chance in hell of teaching what you're midway teaching, mm. but they can observe. They can still see it. They can observe that you're no longer being f effective. Right. Yeah. And you can't necessarily always observe that because you're in the moment, right? Like you're chasing it, you're chasing it, right? Like you're, having someone else go, Hey, I think you might be making some mistakes here. Right. And let's just at least take a minute to explain it. And mm. oh, there's a whole podcast in that, but like I've caught jazz doing that to me really tactically before, like, you know, saying like, Hey, do you think this is going the way that you want? <laughs> <laughs> or like, can you just explain to me? I'm confused about where we're going with this. Can you just explain it to me again? Because I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm seeing what you're seeing. Yeah. Right? And helps you pull your own mistake. Yeah. Up. And then that's mm. how like that's I go, I, I go, like that. oh, yeah. That's well, you. Well played. That's, that's you very tactfully saying, hey, fuck with you wrecking this. Well played, my young pedal. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's like, there's tactful ways to say it, but just at least acknowledging that and going like, oh, okay, yeah, look, I mm. caught, I got caught up. Like I thought he could do something he couldn't. I, I'm drilling a bad behavior into my dog. I'm rehearsing failure. All those kind of things. You can look at it and go, shit, I've gone too far. Mm. And it's not my fault. I'm a dopamine addict. I've been chasing the hit. I'm addicted to that feeling of mild frustration that I'm getting from my dog not performing the correct behavior. Thank you for identifying that for me. Thank you for breaking the loop. Yep. Let's discuss how we can realign to fix this or maybe we just stop mm. right like whatever it takes whatever whatever the process is you got to figure it out but, absolutely but trusting another set of eyes at the moment at that time and that's the benefit of clubs i think there's so many things that we don't actually need people's help for especially when you get creative like the the whole idea of clubs largely could become redundant when you have a very creative uh training regime especially mm. around a sport that doesn't have decoys right like you you don't need other people so much as you need eyes for help, yeah, right. Like you need it, that's the idea of group sourcing information. That's the idea of a club. As we all come together and we work together to discuss what's going to work. And you know, you, I get uh, you. You might say to someone, "This is what I think is important about having people you really trust, and not making people afraid to." rebute what you say. Yeah, they right? don't become agreeable. Yeah, that was a good point. And I was going to bring that up because I think there's nothing more dangerous than developing a group of agreeable people where they only see you as a mentor and then they won't challenge. And again, I'm, I'm talking about it in a respectful manner, but they won't rebute or challenge anything that's going on. They just say, oh, well, you're the mentor in the group. I'm not going to say anything. Whereas it is better where people, and perfect example that you used before with jazz is that maybe they bring it up in a sensitive way to say, hey, could you go over this again? Like, yeah. could we retrace the steps on that just to make sure that- I'm confused. I'm, I'm confused. Well, I mean, that, that really is well played. <laughs> yeah. I remember, you know, this takes me back. I remember when I was a young kid and I was learning to box 
never really went anywhere with it. You know, had had some fun, did some amateur bouts and so forth. But I remember this one guy who was in my club and I was sparring against him. And I just couldn't see a hole in his game. And I was getting so frustrated. It was to the point where I was feeling defeated. And that was mentally defeating me. And, you know, like he just bashed me on every session. And one of the kids that I was training with at the time, he came over to me and he goes, mate, he's got a hole in his game. You're not seeing it. I was angry at the time and, and resentful because I felt disappointed with what I was going through myself. And I ignored him for a couple of sessions. And he came back to me and he goes, dude, you got to see this hole in his left. You know, you're just not looking at it. You're attacking the same angles all the time. And I said, all right, what is it? And he goes, he's got to tell. Like every time he's going to throw this sort of combination, he's dropping his left. And I thought, fuck, he is too. Like I was replaying it in my mind. I thought, I'm a fool. I couldn't see it. But I had somebody there on the sidelines that was actually watching. And he wasn't a coach or anything. He's just a young kid that I used to train with and do a couple of sparring sessions with. That changed the whole dynamic of everything. Yeah. Because I was able to attack on that left-hand side and start to dominate and press on the fight. It changed everything. Yeah. That's the amazing thing about having somebody there that can pull you up when you really need to be pulled up before you do anything that's too detrimental. Because because of that one situation, it prevented me from giving up. Yeah. And I think that sometimes, especially as the coach or Mm. as the training director or whatever – working on the balance of probability. So you go like, oh, I've seen this problem before and it's been caught. Co- I've seen, this is the sixth time I've seen it and five other times it was caused by this. And yep. so I'm just going to jump to the conclusion that it was caused by that. Yep. And so like I recently got that on someone there, their dog was in a down, wasn't like its chest wasn't all the way on the floor. Right. And I said to them, like, it was kind of in a hover down. And I said, oh, look, it's because you're not reinforcing in position at all. The dog's always expecting the release from the position and that's a faster position to release from. Right. Mm-hmm. And then fortunately they had the courage to say to me, like, cause I've been in that position before with a, you know, world renowned expert and been told the problem of my dog is X, right. And I've actually known for a hundred percent sure it's Y, but then I'm like, mm, I don't want to be the guy that argues back. Right. So I'll just go along and say, yeah. And we then do a bunch of training that's not helpful because it's fixing the problem sourced from where it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've had lacked that courage in the past to say, actually, it's this, and this is now what I need you to help me fix, right? Because I know where this came from. And what happened was the dog, this dog was hovering, and I was like, you got to go and pay in position, right? So the dog gets more used to the idea that some reinforcement can come to me, not that you're going to go to it, so stop being so ready to pounce. Yep. And dog goes, oh, at the, the handler says, oh, I actually had an aversive. He, he got like sort of jarred in the chest. There was a like a stake in the ground. Right, right. And the dog downed on it, mm. and now it was like a single event kind of learning. Yep. And I was like, oh, cool. That's a totally different treatment protocol. I've seen the same thing with a bitch who had an infected nipple at the front. Yeah. And it was an aversive for her to come all the way down. Yeah. And I was the same. I was going to press it. I was going to put her into a bit of discomfort to encourage the down. We were just talking, and I gave her a pat on the chest, and she flinched away from me. I said, what's going on there? And they said, oh, she's got mastitis in her nipple and everything like that. And I said, oh, it would have been good to know. Yeah. These things are. So I think that's kind of the, this is a different conversation again, but there's reasons and excuses, right? And yeah. when people throw out excuses like, oh, it's just how he likes it. But then when you go, no, there's actually a legitimate reason he has yep. that, right? And then you go, cool, good to know because that's going to change the way we fix it because it's not that the dog's anticipating release. It's that he's like actually had an aversive. And so now we have to overcome that. We have to Mm. desensitize and counter condition, right? It's a different approach to fixing the problem rather than just showing value in a different place. Mm. 
So I think knowing when is the right time to speak up on that, all these things can avoid, like going back to the original topic of no more, one more time. But mm. I think that all these things can avoid bad training. Yep. That's kind of what we're going for that's, is reinforcing yeah, that's the, the wrong thing. of this conversation. Yeah. And mm. having the wherewithal to identify an issue as it's happening mm. and decide like, hey, I'm not going to make this worse. I might have this issue and yep. I'm going to deal with it mm. later and I'm going to go to the drawing board and I'm going to think about it. Or I'm going to, you know, converse with someone else and figure out how to, who can help me with this. We'll talk about why it might be happening, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Instead of just doubling down in the moment. Right? And we have like, such a great network of people available to us. Yeah. You know, oh, like these days especially. Except with sport for choice. Like I've raised this point so many times. I was fortunate to be around the collective network of people that I was when I was a young trainer, but it's nothing like it is now. Yeah. You know, I mean, it can be a good and a bad thing. There are pros and cons in both aspects of it because now you can get flooded with too many opinions and be too overwhelmed by some of the information that is going on. But the other pro to it is that there is a lot of quality people out there who do give a lot of time. Yeah. Give time as well as sell it. Because I think one of the things that's been interesting about in these times of COVID is that just about everybody has put up some sort of online mechanism, Mm. right? People who have fought it in the past have now got some sort of mechanism for teaching online because yep. they've, they, I guess, you know, probably because there were people they cared about and wanted to train with and couldn't. So they had to develop a system for that. Now mm. that system's available to other people. But, you know, we're at an unprecedented time now where you can buy the time of just about anybody in the Absolutely. world. Right? Absolutely. And I have done lessons with people and they ask specific questions and I say, oh, there's better people to answer that. You should talk to Sean. Mm. And like, oh, but Sean's in another state. And I'm like, he has Zoom. a Patreon. Mm. <laughs> like you can buy his, all of his stuff. It's all there. Yep. You know, you want to talk specifics about grip development. Like you can do an online session with Jerry Bradshaw directly. Yep. Right. Like you don't have to hear it from secondhand from me. I got it from reading his book. Yep. <laughs> you can read the book or you can go to him directly. Right. Mm. So there's so many access to people like, and, and, and most people have plenty of, give away plenty of time, but if you're not getting what you want from the giveaway, you can buy it for sure. Absolutely. <sighs> a lot of talking. <laughs> well, let's finish it there. No more, one more time. No more, one more. No more, one more time. But I've got more things to say, Glenn. I well, we wanna, can, say, I wanna, it. I we wanna, can wanna, say it next week. I want to give another example. We can break it down next week. What, what's your other example? I don't. I was just playing along. There you go. No more, one more time. <laughs> no more. <laughs> All right. You know, that's followed me around for 30 years now. No more, one more time. No more, one more time. I have to have to pull myself back on it. And people have said it to me before where I've done something silly and they've gone, Glenn, no more, one more time. And I thought, fuck, caught yeah. me out on my own bullshit. You know what? I almost never have an issue with that with other people's dogs. Yep. But you do with your own. With my own dogs, for sure. Yeah. Because that's I think- the hardest for us yeah. at our stage because we're the ones advising people no more, one more time. Yeah. You know, we're mentoring them. And effectively, you know, like I've stopped a few people from making some silly mistakes recently where, you know, they've shown me things they're doing and I've said, it's too many reps. Yeah. You know, just but, too much. But I think one of the issues, here we go, I, I tricked you into letting me have one more. I know. One of the issues is when you put sort of too much emotion into it and that's why it happens with your own dog because you're like, no, you fucking know this, right? And it's yeah. like, no, he doesn't. But you feel like he does. False and, perception. Yeah. And there's mm. that idea of like, I know the dog better than- 
this like mm. a, and then the observer can go you might know the dog bro but this is not working out yep. like this is not panning out and that's the issue like i'm much much better at it now than i have been in the past i used to do way too much really push dogs over the edge and get caught into a frustrated loop and basically unteach things that i taught it's very rare for me to like make that big a mistake now. I know, but you're working on the limitations of your knowledge at the time too, yeah, which which everybody does at the start of their game. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, even veterans do it. Veterans yeah. Do oh, it. it's easy to get stuck into yeah. it as we've discussed. But I think, like I say, I seldom to never mm. do it with other people's dogs. Yep. But that's because you're watching so keenly. That's right. And, I and you are the second set of eyes. Like they're not sure of what they're doing, but you can see it because you're paying keen. You know that there's a problem coming up and yeah. you're watching for well, it. Well, what it is as well is, see, I'm training the dog in front of me at that time. Yep. I'm not training the dog that I think I know. Yeah. Right? I'm training the dog mm. like I'm reading what you're telling me right mm. now and you're telling me this is the best you've got or that you're about to give it. You know, I'm reading this right here, right now. Yep. I'm not relying on the balance of probabilities of what I've seen in the past because I haven't seen anything in the past. Yep. And that's why you can be a lot more. You might not get as – like I think the issue that I – if I'm going to talk really honestly about training with other people's dogs is maybe I stop too early sometimes. Maybe I could push a bit more. But, but seldom, you're better off. Yeah, you're better I, off. I, I do think you're way better off doing yeah. it that way. You're better off cutting it. short than going long. Yeah, leaving the dog wanting yep. so that the next session Absolutely. is better. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. That's it. I got gotcha. you. You did. You got the one more time. <laughs> but it. it was a good one more time. <laughs> See, we still had drive. We weren't ready to quit. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Some people have been doing the really cool thing and being specific about what they, they like about the show. Mm, some nice emails too. Yeah, that's mm. true. Yep. But do that on a review page. Yes. Not just on our own Facebook page. Yep. Like Podchaser. Apple iTunes, yeah, Spotify. Uh, Stitcher, Spotify. If we could get one of those $100 million Joe Rogan deals, holy shit. Yep, you could be our, what's Rogan's sidekick's name? Jamie. Yeah, you could be our Jamie. <laughs> yeah, if you got us on there, you're, you're, you're it. That's your job. <laughs> you're our Jamie. So be specific. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Constantly trickling content into mm. there. Sort of our original idea has gone by the wayside. So initially we said it was just going to be one episode on the first of the month and it was going to be just another episode. But it's kind of turned into... A little uh, bit here and a little bit there. Well, we still have something come out in the first all the time, yeah. but it's been... A lot more stuff. It's sort of I'm You're using very a little generous. bit as You're a You're being curating. very, very generous. I, so what happens is when I do these Zoom sessions, I film my end of them, mm. right? And so I don't film the other people. It's just my end. And if I think that something is relevant, like if I say something and I think, shit, more people could benefit from benefit that, from that yeah. I just clip it and put it into Patreon. And I think people yeah. enjoy that. Yeah. Other I do. Place, I've watched some of them and I, I enjoy it too. Oh, yeah. You just like looking at me. I do. I did one in a Hawaiian shirt the other day. I know. <laughs> Yeah. I'm bringing it in. Yeah, you're looking like Billy Butcher more and more. Yeah, that's what I'm trying <laughs> for. Another way to support the show is to buy some cool Hawaiian – we should get some Hawaiian shirts. Hawaiian the, shirts the with – Does Teespring uh, have Hawaiian shirts? They may do. I'll look into it. We need to look at that. Mm. All right. Hopefully we have some TCP Hawaiian shirts. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us – if you've got training questions, put it in the group, mm -hmm. right? If you have training specific questions that you want to talk to one of us about, contact the one of us individually. We cannot, will not be answering training questions from the TCP email address. Yep. Right? Because it's too difficult to say, who do you want? 
Blah, blah, blah. So if you want to talk Just to put me. put a name. Yeah, but if you want to talk to me, talk to me. If you want to talk yep. to Glenn, talk to Glenn. But if you want to talk to us about the show, give ideas for the show, feedback on the show. Good idea. Please do that via yep. our email address, which is info at thecanonparadigm.com. We'll both see that. Yep. Uh, but if you want specific training stuff, just talk to the one of us who you want it from. Perfectly said. That's it. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>